Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Sarah Lee Whitson, Executive Director of Democracy for the Arab World Now, who examines Israel's war crimes in Gaza and U.S. complicity in the eyes of the International Criminal Court. Liv Cunnens Berkowitz, media coordinator with Jewish Voice for Peace, who talks about the pressure her group is exerting on President Biden and members of Congress to support an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. And David Pepper, former chair of Ohio's Democratic Party, who discusses how Ohio activists and voters overcame GOP obstacles to win approval of a ballot question enshrining access to abortion in the state's constitution. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. As the world focuses on the brutal Israel-Hamas war in Gaza and Russia's invasion of Ukraine, upwards of 200,000 Afghan refugees living in Pakistan were forced to return to their country after a November 1st expulsion order from the Pakistani military. The order targeted 1.7 million Afghan refugees, many who had lived in Pakistan for decades. A network of holding centers for detained migrants has been set up, and locals report a surge in police harassment and abuse of Afghans living in the country. Over the last 40 years, large numbers of Afghan refugees have fled to Pakistan to escape the violence that has gripped their country, dating back to the 1979 Soviet invasion. The latest wave of refugees arrived after the Taliban takeover in the summer of 2021. Pakistan is struggling to rein in the Pakistani Taliban's armed groups that operate within the nation, who have a loose connection to the Taliban government next door in Afghanistan. With the expulsion order, relations between Pakistan and Afghanistan have sunk to their lowest level in decades. After nearly two decades of massive lending to emerging economies globally, China has become the world's biggest debt collector. Beijing has invested heavily in its 10-year-old Belt and Road Initiative, a grand plan to connect China with major economies in Asia, Africa, and Europe. China now sits on $1.7 trillion in external debt from 60 nations. However, The Guardian reports that an estimated 80% of China's overseas lending portfolio in the Global South is now supporting countries in financial distress. Although lending from Chinese state-backed banks has helped build railways in Kenya and power plants in Cambodia, along with thousands of other projects, the debt to Chinese lenders has mounted, as has the number of suspended or canceled projects. To address soaring debt, Chinese lenders have been trying to lower their exposure to risk by reducing loans for infrastructure projects while ramping up emergency lending. At the same time, China has increased penalties for late repayments, a move that may alienate borrowers. 
Researchers at William and Mary College cite figures from the Gallup World Poll, which found that public approval ratings for China in low- and middle-income countries has fallen from 56% in 2019 to 40% in 2021. In a major development, the Internal Revenue Service announced that after a 15-year audit of Microsoft, the agency notified the software giant that it owes $29 billion in back taxes, plus penalties and interest for the years 2004 to 2013. Microsoft is appealing the IRS audit finding, a process that's likely to take years. This largest IRS audit in U.S. history focused on Microsoft's sale of its most valuable possession, its intellectual property, to an 85-person factory it owned in a small Puerto Rican city. After negotiating a favorable tax deal with Puerto Rico, Microsoft then channeled its profits to the facility, which burned Windows and Office software onto CDs. ProPublica reports that the Microsoft case is significant since it comes at a time when the IRS is rebuilding its investigative capacity with an infusion of funds from the Inflation Reduction Act. The goal is to use its strengthened investigative unit to expose high-level tax avoidance strategies used by corporate America to boost government revenues by billions of dollars. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. Despite the fact that more than 11,000 Palestinians have been killed, including 4,600 children, the Biden administration and Congress continue to solidly support Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's relentless bombing campaign and ground assault in Gaza. After Hamas massacred 1,200 Israelis and kidnapped 240 civilians brought back to Gaza as hostages, Biden sent two aircraft carriers to patrol offshore. Biden has also asked Congress to approve $14 billion for Israel, in addition to the $3.8 billion Israel receives from the U.S. every year, in military aid. The proposed White House Israel and Ukraine funding request is now stalled, as the House Republican Caucus is in disarray. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhus spoke with Sarah Lee Whitson, executive director of the group Democracy for the Arab World Now, or DAWN. Here she explains why U.S. support for Israel's mass killing of Palestinian civilians in Gaza and the fear of many Gaza residents that they will soon be permanently forcibly displaced from their homes makes the U.S. complicit in war crimes in the eyes of the International Criminal Court. The United States has been Israel's largest weapons supplier for decades. Um, the United States has provided billions and billions and billions of dollars of military support uh, to Israel, um, and that is matched by America's political support of Israel, reflected most significantly in America's role in shielding Israel from any accountability, any restraint, 
any uh, compliance with uh, international law at the UN Security Council. Uh, the U.S. is counted on uh, by Israel to veto any measure, uh, no matter how broadly supported by the international community or every single member of the Security Council. The U.S. steps in to veto measures that would, for example, most recently bring about even a humanitarian pause, uh, much less a ceasefire. In this uh, most recent uh, round of conflict, because the war uh, against Palestinians did not start on October 7, um, but in this most recent round, the United States has supplemented the billions it has already provided with Israel this year with additional military support, with the presence of uh, Navy warships uh, to buttress Israel's defense. Now, given Israel's record uh, in this latest round of fighting of systematic and widespread war crimes against Palestinian people, the U.S. is complicit uh, in these war crimes because it is playing a role of aiding and abetting war crimes. This is particularly significant at a moment in time when the International Criminal Court uh, has launched a historic uh, investigation, an open uh, prosecution of uh, Israeli war crimes and Palestinian crimes in Palestine since 2014. This means that U.S. officials can also be found criminally liable by the International Criminal Court for their role in aiding and abetting Israeli crimes. The U.S. is not a party uh, to the International Criminal Court and has repeatedly threatened and sanctioned uh, the court under prior administrations for their efforts to hold Israeli officials accountable and American officials accountable, including for crimes in Afghanistan. However, the U.S. is not being a party to the Rome Statute will not shield American officials from criminal liability where the ICC has jurisdiction as it does in Palestine. The state of Palestine uh, submitted uh, the situation in uh, Palestine uh, to the International Criminal Court. The International Criminal Court opened an examination, a preliminary examination, and then declared that it was formally launching an investigation. Israel and the U.S. and others challenged the International Criminal Court's jurisdiction by stating that Palestine is not a state and therefore not able to ask for the court's jurisdiction. The International Criminal Court rejected that appeal uh, on jurisdictional grounds, and uh, the prosecutor therefore then reaffirmed in 2019 that the investigation is open and ongoing. Um, and because that investigation is open and ongoing, it would capture anyone uh, who uh, participates in or contributes to crimes and violations of the Rome Statute, including American officials for aiding and abetting. It seems like there's been a slight change uh, in Biden administration and other maybe members of Congress attitude toward what's going on now since October 7th, after Biden went to Israel and said there was no, no sunlight between him and Netanyahu, gave him a big hug. And now different officials, including Biden, are calling for a humanitarian pause what do you think of the idea of a humanitarian pause and how that fits into the U.S. relationship with, with Israel? 
It's true that there has been a slight change in evolution in the Biden administration's position from where it started, uh, and I think where President Biden probably uh, remains, uh, and that is fully in support of Israel, right or wrong, uh, Palestinians be damned. That evolved into language trying to emphasize uh, efforts of the United States to get humanitarian aid uh, into uh, Palestinians in Gaza, uh, as well as uh, Palestinians uh, outside of Gaza with plans for funding uh, to build infrastructure for Palestinian refugees in Egypt, um, which itself would be aiding and abetting the war crime of forcible displacement of Palestinians from Gaza. And now uh, it has morphed into actually saying that they want to encourage Israel to agree to a so-called humanitarian pause. All of these slight improvements are really not much more than empty rhetoric uh, reflecting the Biden administration's desperate efforts to catch up to where the American people are. And the American people are horrified and disgusted uh, with the bombardment of Gaza to also cover their own asses uh, in terms of the global accountability that is taking place and will continue to take place against the United States for its role in supporting Israeli war crimes. That was Sarah Lee Whitson, executive director of the group Democracy for the Arab World Now, or DAWN. Learn more about DAWN and allegations of war crimes committed by Hamas in Israel by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. It's been more than five weeks since the Hamas October 7th terrorist attack that killed 1,200 Israelis and kidnapped 240 civilians, taken to Gaza as hostages. Since then, Israel's retaliatory bombing and ground assault in Gaza has killed more than 11,000 Palestinians, including more than 4,600 children. Although President Biden continues to stand with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in rejecting a ceasefire, United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres, Pope Francis, and French President Emmanuel Macron have all called for a cessation of hostilities in Gaza to allow humanitarian aid to reach 2.3 million Palestinian civilians deprived of food, water, and medical care. Since the start of Israel's bombardment of Gaza, large protests demanding a ceasefire have been held in many major cities around the world. Jewish Voice for Peace an organization with 70 chapters and 400,000 members across the U.S., has organized protests in more than 30 American cities, calling on President Biden and Congress to support a ceasefire. JVP protests and civil disobedience actions have occupied the Capitol Rotunda in Washington, D.C., New York City's Grand Central Station, the Statue of Liberty, Philadelphia's main train station, and the Federal Building in Oakland, California. Your reporter spoke with Liv Kunis Berkowitz, media coordinator with Jewish Voice for Peace, who talks about the pressure her group is exerting on President Biden and members of Congress to support an immediate Gaza ceasefire. Over 10,000 Palestinians have been murdered in Gaza, and 4,000 of them are children. There is no war strategy that can possibly justify the murder of 4,000 children. 36 journalists have been killed since October 7th in Gaza and 72 aid workers. This is destruction of innocent people 
And there is no wartime strategy that can justify such a mass amount of destruction. And more than that, about half the homes in Gaza have been destroyed. We are seeing really an ethnic cleansing of an entire population. And we know that as much as Israel justifies this in terms of wartime strategy, many people in the Israeli government have also made comments that suggest that there's other motives at play. Leaders in the Israeli government have called Palestinians human animals. And we as Jewish people know what happens when people are called human animals. That same rhetoric was used to justify the murder of my ancestors. And so for me, I know that what comes after dehumanization is is death and destruction. And I will not stand by. And we with Jewish Voice for Peace will not stand by as that happens. You know, in 1948, Israel was founded through the Nakba, which is means the catastrophe. The Nakba was the forced displacement of 700,000 Palestinians from their homes. Many of them were displaced into Gaza. A lot of these people who are living every day under this incessant bombing have already been refugees in their lifetime or are the children of people who have been refugees. And there's people in the Israeli government calling for a second Nakba. And so what we're seeing is not war as usual. This is an epic proportion, and the level of, of dehumanization and destruction is words cannot, cannot begin to describe it. And so we're calling for a ceasefire because we know that no peace is possible as this bombing continues, and because we know that Israel is, is going far beyond what is even in the normal grounds of war and are consistently breaking international law using white phosphorus, which is a war crime, and again, their bombing has led to the murder of 4,000 children in Gaza. Liv, I did want to ask you about uh, criticism of Jewish Voice for Peace. You have groups like the Anti-Defamation League, a Jewish organization that claims uh, Jewish Voice for Peace is a radical anti-Israel and anti-Zionist activist group that advocates for the boycott of Israel and eradication of Zionism, they say. The Anti-Defamation League also accuses JVP of giving rise to anti-Semitism itself. How do you negotiate the charges from these pro-Israel groups, many of them identifying with the Jewish religion, as claiming basically that Jewish Voice for Peace are a bunch of self-hating Jews? I have to say, I unfortunately hear this from from journalists all the time, you know, parroting these claims. And this is not accusing you, but I, I understand where the question comes from. But it's it's heartbreaking that every day I have to answer this question as a proud Jewish person who, whose tradition informs the way I walk through this world. My ancestors fled pogroms in Russia and Poland, and I was raised on the stories of, of hearing what it means to flee anti-Semitic violence. I know what anti-Semitism is. So my commitment to speaking out for Palestinian liberation for the end of this genocide in Palestine comes from the own knowledge of what happened to my community. Only one U.S. Senator, Dick Durbin, as well as 23 uh, House representatives uh, support a ceasefire at present. What is your organization doing right now to convince Congress to take a stand on a ceasefire as we've reached this grim milestone of 10,000 Palestinians who've now died in the bombardment of Gaza? You know, as devastating as this last month has been, I've also had the immense privilege of being part of a multiracial, multi-faith, multi-class, international movement for peace and for justice. And we are joining together with people all over America who are calling their representatives every single day, asking our government to truly represent the voice of the American people. You know, we wish that 
phone calls would be enough, but clearly representatives are showing that they're putting the interests of I don't even know who over the voices of the American citizens. And so we're going to continue staging sit-ins in offices, peaceful and prayerful sit-ins where we share our stories and make our voices heard because this bombing cannot continue. And the loss of innocent life in Gaza is a war crime and is also a moral catastrophe. That was Liv Kunis-Berkowitz, media coordinator with Jewish Voice for Peace. Learn more about the group and their protest actions demanding a Gaza ceasefire by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Ohio voters who went to the polls on November 7th resoundingly approved ballot question issue one that ensures access to abortion and other forms of reproductive health care. The victory for pro-choice activists, 57 to 43 percent, was decisive. Seven states across the U.S. have now voted to protect abortion access since the Supreme Court overturned the 1973 Roe v. Wade ruling and repeal women's right to bodily autonomy. The battle for reproductive rights in Ohio was hard fought. The gerrymandered Republican majority in the state legislature first attempted and failed to raise the bar for the number of votes required to pass a ballot question, and then pro-choice activists charged that the wording of the November 7th ballot question was designed in such a way to deliberately confuse voters. Your reporter spoke with David Pepper former chair of the Ohio Democratic Party and author. Here he discusses what activists in other states can learn from Ohio's effective voter education strategies that overcame Republican dirty tricks, as up to eight other states are expected to hold their own reproductive rights referendums in 2024. I mean, I think the first lesson is almost every state in America, probably every state, polls would show is pro-choice. And you start from that basis The 57% of yes vote last week perfectly reflects the the polls that we've seen for years in Ohio, which is that somewhere in the mid to high 50s, most Ohioans supported Roe v. Wade, a woman's right to choose, in this case, reproductive freedom. So the the good news is know that you're starting from a point where you're with the people. And that's true whether or not it's a referendum, whether or not you're a candidate. And I think sometimes Democrats convince themselves that there's sometimes – somehow in the minority. And and in this case, and frankly, many others, you know, stand tall and realize, no, most people agree that government should not be getting into these decisions between a woman and her doctor. And they think that in Kansas, they'll think that in Florida and vote that way. And I think that's lesson one. Uh, Lesson two, though, is the right knows this as well. They're not under some illusion that abortion bans, no exceptions are somehow popular. So what you need to prepare for is all sorts of, of tactics that are truly you know, anti-democratic. And in Ohio, we had to overcome – and I'm so glad that people did – but we had to overcome so much manipulation, attempts to change the rules, you know, changing the ballot language, disinformation. And I think the lesson in the future is – and it worked here, thank goodness – but know that that's where they're coming with and be ready. And Make sure you frame this from the very beginning 
that in these states like ours where you had abortion ban, no exceptions, so that a a 10-year-old rape victim was forced to go to Indiana, frame it to make it clear that they're the extremists here. We're simply trying to reflect the majority of our states and the laws they've passed in many of these red states. Most of them are very extreme, and I think that's an important part of of winning is that that frame – be established very early on, and you don't really ever let it be given up. At the very end of the election, you knew the Republicans were in trouble when they were saying things like, oh, we'll renegotiate it, meaning they realized that their law was too extreme. And then when they tried to walk it back, people didn't didn't believe them. But I think framing it that way, very, very important. The fight for democracy in Ohio is far from over. As I've been reading Ohio's Republican Party is now planning to ignore and obstruct the will of their state's voters by stripping out state courts from interpreting the abortion rights amendment that just passed, giving Ohio's gerrymandered Republican legislature's majority the final say on the authority and the implementation of the ballot question that passed overwhelmingly. Here's the thing that I've tried to explain to people. This is who these people are, and not, it's not just Ohio. You basically have a generation of officials in many states. You know, Mike Johnson, the new speaker, is one of them, whose entire existence in politics, they've had no accountability. They are lawless. They are gerrymandered, so they don't worry about the people back home. And the current legislature in Ohio is itself in districts that violate the Ohio Constitution. So Ohioans twice reformed our districting process and gerrymandering, 70% voted twice. Like they're threatening to do here, they just ignored it, and they just gerrymandered anyway. So the problem is these are people who've basically gotten away with being lawless for so long that it's what they do. They don't even think about it. It's how they've operated. It's how they get ahead. So that's the negative. The positive is I think this, you know, knock on wood, we're going to make a lot of noise to make sure I'm right. But I think this is so cockamamie. So over the top. I mean, this is literally, you don't even have Orban and Hungary doing this. They may rig how they pick courts, but the idea that they're going to get rid of the courts, which is the proposal, you described it very well, get rid of the court being involved and have the legislature itself determine if its laws are consistent with the Constitution. No, I've never seen that anywhere in America. And I think that they are desperate. But one of the lessons is the further into a corner these people get, and I've seen this for years, they don't quit. They get more lawless. They get more aggressive, and that's what this is. So when they're very close to losing power, in this case, losing for some of them the issue they've run their whole lives on, yeah, they get increasingly desperate, dangerous. But I think in this case, I think we make enough noise on this, and I think my guess is other state representatives will say, we are not. We can't do that. I mean that is truly the end of any checks and balances. In Ohio, now, the courts in Ohio right now are actually somewhat friendly. I'm afraid to say to their side as it is. So I worry about the court itself as it is. But obviously, having the legislature review the, their own work is outrageous, and we'll see where it goes. Obviously, that was David Pepper, former chair of Ohio's Democratic Party and author. His latest book is titled "Saving Democracy: A User's Manual for Every American." Learn more about how pro-choice activists won Ohio's abortion access referendum by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org.
been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WXOJ in Northampton, Massachusetts, KCEI in Taos, New Mexico, KMWV in Salem, Oregon, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.